Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We're planning to try and win the competition and whatever happens, it's been a very good season for us and we're all determined to crown that season if we possibly can by bringing home a trophy. To write our names in the history books of this club would be something that we would remember forever and everyone involved with the club, mainly the supporters of course, could be grateful for and think back on in years to come as a wonderful achievement. After 287 days in the competition and 18 matches, Fulham's run in the 2010 Europa League was coming to a conclusion. On the 12th of May, Atletico Madrid were Fulham's final test. Over 12,000 Whites fans had made the journey to North Germany, but could Hodgson's team complete the ultimate football fairy tale? Hamburg will host the final. Fulham will play in it. So on this episode of Unforgettable, we are doing things a little bit differently. We're doing a roundtable discussion to remember the events of the 12th of May 2010 when Fulham headed to Hamburg with high hopes of securing the club's first major trophy. And I'm joined by three of Fulhamish's finest. Two of those were in Hamburg that day and one knows just a thing or two about Spanish football. Firstly, Farrell Monk. Hello everyone, stay home, stay safe. Yes, indeed, although that advice uh, is changing by the day. Uh, Drew Heatley, how are you doing? Yeah, very well, thanks. And Ben Jarman. Hope all was good with you too. Hola amigos. Yeah, I'm very good, thank you. Good stuff. Well, Farrell and Drew, let's talk firstly about that day in Hamburg. Over 12,000 Fulham fans headed back to North Germany. Some of us had already been there for the semi-final, but uh, it, it was a very different scene that day for those few thousand that were there the first time around. The Reaper Barn was packed with Fulham fans and and... Until maybe the day at Wembley in 2018, I'd certainly never seen anything quite like it. Farrell, what are your memories from that amazing day? Yeah, I mean, the whole sort of experience was was truly remarkable and something I will never forget. But man, did it take quite a while to get there because um, there wasn't a huge amount of um, methods to, to to get to Hamburg, even though the, you know there were no ash clouds this this time around um people were really struggling for for uh planes and and whatnot to get over there we we decided to drive um took us uh all well about 12 13 hours but you know the the excitement of getting there and and uh, experiencing the day was was something will live long in certainly in my memory and just getting there and and you know, in the build-up to it in in Hamburg, along the Reaper Barn, and in the area, it was incredible just to see so many Fulham fans in one place, and there was like this huge buzz around the town, and it was because Fulham were there, 
and it's it's something it's something weird to experience really and in such you know foreign lands i mean drew a day like that is generally reserved for the very biggest of clubs and i'll never forget being in that central square in the reaper bar and seeing fulham fans hanging off of statues with steins in hand and um drinking with, with the atleti fans who who were a massive part of of that day it it was something that I just never really thought Fulham would ever experience. No, and it would take, as you mentioned earlier, it would take another eight years for us to experience anything, anything quite like it. it was it was uh, the the grandeur and the scale of it all was just overwhelming. Uh, you know, it could have been it could have been tipping it down with rain, and it would have been uh, nobody would have had their spirits damp. And it took me about twelve hours, I think, on the club coach to to get there. And you know, we're in the we're in the square. Funnily enough, we we're all probably. Uh, right next to each other you uh farrell and myself and we didn't know it and i'm there with uh my full of mug full of beer because uh on the run up to the final i was so led by superstition i had almost a europa league outfit it was the same t-shirt the same jacket the same trousers and uh, i always drank out of uh, i always drank out my full of mug the morning of the game so i couldn't I couldn't not take it with me to Hamburg. So there I was. Uh, I took a coffee in it when I first got there and then uh, I ended up just drinking beer out of it in the day anyway. I mean, Farrah, what are your like greatest memories? How did how did the day pan out for you itself? Where were you and, and how did you then eventually make your way uh, to the Nordbank Arena? We actually decided to stay in the next town over of Bremen because it was a bit cheaper and there wasn't that many places available um and as true quite rightly says you know everyone all Fulham fans packed inside that that small uh square and there's um there was a there was a moment when in the square where um you know the party atmosphere was going and then there was a two very uh well quite attractive ladies up in up in the up in one of the apartments overlooking the square and they disappeared where when people and people started booing and it was only because they were answering the door and they'd let they'd let a few Fulham fans in and the almighty cheer that goes up when you see a couple of Fulham fans and then then hanging out the apartment apartment window is something is 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 a memory that will, will live with me as well but you know it was on the on the way to that square as well you passed where the uh, Madrid fans had their own square and they'd they were very well prepared as a fan base they had a whole huge stage with a with a screen and there were they had whoever you know, was up there leading songs and and whatnot. It was actually quite something to experience. And then you get to the Fulham um, Square, and it was chaos. And Drew, in in an age where Europa League finals are now held in Baku and no one can get to them, Hamburg was uh, an amazing city um, to host that final, and you couldn't really have picked a better one um i'm struggling to rack my brain as somewhere i would rather have gone for 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 our one and only uh proper european final yeah and much like we look back and say you know we we didn't realize we had it so good i'm pretty sure that you know uefa i mean the fans of the europa league clubs who are in it now will be like you know this it used to be so so much better it was obviously the inaugural season but to be in a a stadium like hamburg's which as farrell said was only four years old uh at the time and coming off a world cup which was you know universally well received i think by everyone uh you couldn't pick a better place and you know this this sort of the history of the city and uh how it's steeped in the history and the beatles and all of that sort of stuff it was 
it was just a great place to go and have a good old knees up with Fulham fans, uh, you know, some of which are no longer with us. And we got to spend that sort of time with them in this really surreal sort of atmosphere. It was, uh, it's a far, you know, far cry from, as you mentioned, like, you know, Arsenal, Chelsea and Baku. Uh, does anyone remember the Herbert Strasser um, in, in Hamburg? Obviously, the Reaper Barn is the name of the larger uh, red light district. But um, there's one particular street which is kind of screened off. And I'm pretty sure only men can walk down there. And um, that was a bit of a surreal one being 18 year old, being 18 years old and walking down there with my dad. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was also spending the day with my dad and uh, equally odd sort of situation as he's, uh, uh, you know, probably not the type of, he's definitely not the type of guy who'd usually go down there. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, I mean, I just remember walking down there and it was just a wash of sex shops and Burger Kings, which doesn't sound too bad, to be honest. But it's actually, isn't it like a lot closer to St. Pauli as well? Uh, yeah, it is a lot closer to San Paoli. And I remember a lot of San Paoli fans uh, were out in force that day and very much um, supporting Fulham because we had been the ones to knock out Hamburg and they were so delighted that it wasn't Hamburg fans enjoying a Europa League final in their own city, which would have been unbearable for them. So I think a lot of them were very, very happy that uh, Fulham had made the trip. I, I think my most iconic memory of that day was taking the the metro or whatever the equivalent is called in Hamburg from the, from the Reeperbahn area to the stadium and getting separated from everyone um, that I was with that day and just being on my own um, in a sea of Atleti fans um, on the on the tube as 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 an yeah as a, as an eighteen year old I was a little bit daunted by uh, by the prospects they actually kind of took me under their wing and almost. Um, almost helped me get to the stadium, uh, which which was kind of terrifying. And then somehow just magically managed to bump in back into everyone that I was with. Didn't have a mobile phone or anything, but just kind of the, the sea of Fulham fans kind of made, found, made me find who I was with uh, again. So let's have a little bit of a look at the match. Bobby Zamora started the game for Fulham. It was very much a, a patched up job, uh, but he did start in Hamburg. And... Ben, I feel like a fully fit Bobby Zamora could have really changed the outcome of that game. Yeah, I think so as well. It was a, he was a player that was in a, a vein of form that we hadn't really seen from any of our players um, in that Europa League runner, other than perhaps Zoltan Gira. And he was one of the most dominant strikers in the whole competition. You rarely get a striker that has that much influence on a team's whole run into, into a final as much as uh, Bobby Zamora did for, for Fulham. Obviously, the, the other comparison is on the other side of the fence here, in that uh, Atletico had two big strikers in, in their ranks that had almost propelled them to the final as well. But Zamora starting for us that day was the, as big a boost as you could get. Um, and anyone hoping that he would be on top form uh, would have been confident in a win. Yeah, but he sadly wasn't quite uh, fit for that match, Farrow, was he? It was it was very much a Bobby Zamora at fifty percent who was still able to kind of influence the match, but it just it just wasn't the Bobby that we saw yeah, take take Shakhtar and Juventus apart. Well, yeah, I mean it was very much um, as the season went on. Obviously, his Achilles, the famed Achilles that uh, had been hampering much of his late season, was was taking its toll more and more and the recovery between each Europa League game was getting um, longer and longer considering he 
didn't I hardly think he featured in the in the Premier League since about the March time. Um and you know it was much of the same story than it was in the semi-finals and even in the quarterfinals that he was withdrawn um later and later on and I think he only actually made it to the 60th minute before the pain obviously overcame any sort of adrenaline that he had and you know he did have a very you know fleeting influence a couple of times in the game but not not the same Bobby Zamora that that we had grown to to love especially throughout that season and and of course uh, two other big uh, selection dramas for Fulham was whether Damien Duff was going to be in the side who also did make it with a late fitness test because he got injured I think by Matty Everington in a Stoke match uh, just a week previous and I think a lot of people thought Roy Hodgson was a bit crazy for playing such a strong lineup against a notoriously rough uh, Stoke City side under Tony Pulis uh, and Chris Baird uh, was at right back instead of uh, John Pansel who had played the semi-final but wasn't quite fit enough to play the full game uh, against Hamburg. Um, ben, let's have a look at Atleti's side. And I think at the time, we didn't really realise how big a stars David De Gea and Sergio Aguero would, would go on to be. A lot of eyes were on Forlan and Reyes, who, who English football fans were probably a bit more familiar with. Yeah, so I'll go on and give a little bit of context. Uh, so this was the Atletico that Fulham faced this season were pretty much a far cry from the Atletico that we see today. It was around about two years before the Simeone era had commenced and ushered in that era of glitz and glamour that we know now based on that sort of 4-4-2 rigidity and grit. At this time, Atletico were sort of perennial outsiders in Spain. They were consistently finishing fourth behind Real Madrid, Barcelona and Valencia, who were very strong then at at that time. The 2009-10 season them for Atletico had an optimistic feel to it. They were embarking on their second Champions League campaign in succession after 11 year absence from that competition Uh, and their strikers were the the envy of the big clubs all across Europe obviously with Forlan and the previously mentioned Aguero and they'd also uncovered one of the most promising goalkeepers in Europe in David De Gea in which was his lone season I believe before departing for Manchester United. But quickly that season for Atletico, which was meant to be a landmark and the closing of, of them, uh, of the gap between them and the powerhouses of Spain, quickly turned into a nightmare. Atleti went through, through three coaches before Christmas and they crashed out of the Champions League without a win in the group that featured two of probably the weaker teams in that competition that year, which were Porto and Apoel Nicosia. Their squad of coveted superstars such as Reyes, Forlan and Aguero were unfortunately littered with ageing journeymen who were scraping through games and without the influence of Aguero and Forlan who had won the European Golden Shoe the year before with uh, 32 goals, Atletico probably would have fallen away much sooner both in Europe and domestically. After Christmas though, Atleti sort of flicked a switch uh, and they put their focus purely on the Copa del Rey where they reached the final, unfortunately losing to Sevilla and to the Europa League as a salvation to rescue what was a disastrous season. With Kike Sanchez-Flores 4-4-2 providing stability to a floundering side, Atletico suffered domestically, stuttering to a ninth place finish and their worst uh, finishing position for four years, barely making the top half. So it wasn't particularly rosy for Atletico at that time. No, indeed. And I think the mad thing to think is that David De Gea was not actually the first choice keeper for, for Atleti, was he? He was kind of drafted in um, for, for the Liverpool and and Fulham games. And um, little do we know what kind of uh, a, a 
talent that we, we were we were facing that night. We just thought we were facing Atleti's untested youngster at that time. Yeah, he was uh, actually brought in for uh, Sergio Asenjo, who um, has gone on to have a, a pretty long glittering career. But um, he was always one of those guys, uh, De Gea, around the early parts of his season where everyone knew the quality of him, but no one had actually seen him play to that level. And it wasn't until he was introduced to those games for the Europa League that he really started to make his influence on, on that Atleti team and, and started to become a mainstay. And that's when he started to attract the plaudits from all the big teams across Europe before obviously moving to Manchester United. Farrell, talk to me about the atmosphere that day in Hamburg. There were officially 12,000 Fulham fans um, at the ground. It felt like an awful lot more than that at the time. Um, the allocation um, for this final w- was quite messy from memory. But overall, I just remember being in awe when I first came into the Nordbank Arena. And to see that many Fulham fans in another country is 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 crazy that the fact that best part of 20,000 FFC fans were at a game where you had to travel either on a plane or a very very long coach uh, was was insane yeah it was it, it was it was insane and and magical cuz you know the last time that Fulham had sort of played in a you know neutral venue that was um a, you know fighting for somewhat a trophy was probably, you know, the FA Cup semi-final um, best part of a decade previously. And that was in Villa Park. And I don't know what the attendance was for that one, but, you know, this was on foreign soil and no one really knew how many people would make it and whatnot. But, you know, the, the in the in the build-up to the game, there was a lot of talk around the ticket allocation. And I remember getting home from the from the Hamburg semi-final and almost immediately the ticket information had been put up on screen and the big shocking overriding memory of it was that it was four tickets per season ticket holder, which I thought was just absolutely mad considering how seemingly little the allocation was, Um, you know, and of course it did end up causing a lot of problems. I was looking at lots of the forums. There was plenty of people who'd been to every um away game in the in the Europa League season but didn't have a season ticket for obvious reasons and therefore those people were stood to to miss out and there was this frantic scrambling of people to try and get uh, people to try and get tickets for certain people i know that Mohamed al fayed had um well, i think this i don't know if this is a rumor or or uh, legend but al fayed had purchased quite a number of sponsors tickets and given them to some of the best fans who couldn't get tickets for the final. But, you know, hopefully everyone who deserved to be there managed to get there. And the the atmosphere within the stadium, you know, Madrid gave as good as they got. They every so often would bellow out their massive athletic song. Um, but Fulham had an array of their own and um, less said about um, the Black Eyed Peas song, The Better, um, which turns out is actually according to the Athletic article, a, a squad thing as opposed to a Fulham fans thing. But, um, you know, we still, we had another huge rendition of the stand-up, if you still believe, which was spine-tingling. Um, you know, there were plenty of times where we were giving as good as we got and Madrid fans were having to try and blow whistles to, to drown us out. But thankfully, our we roared until our lungs blew hoarse and... Um, it was quite an atmosphere, really. It was two 
kind of unfancied sides that made their way to the final. Um, we know a lot about Hodgson's tactics and, and the different um, styles of play that he utilised in order to get what was a fairly average Fulham side on paper to the final. But how did the two sides square up against each other in this match? And what were the key battles that, that, that won and lost this game for either side? So this was basically two teams who had came into the the game as sort of underdogs and almost seemed to be intent on outcountering each other. Both of them wanted to have low blocks where they countered each other on the on the attack with big sweeping counter attacks. And I think we see a good example of this in Atletico's first goal where the play breaks down and Forlan and Aguero are both in a lot of people's eyes probably on the wrong side of the halfway line. You see Reyes bring the ball up about 30 or 40 yards in a mad dash. And that's what Atletico wanted to do. They wanted to sit back and almost out Fulham, Fulham. And you asked me about the big battle, Sammy. And I always remember this, both on the commentary and on the TV. Uh, I just remember Thomas Ujfalusi having probably the game of his life. Um, he c- consistently breaking uh, the play down for Atletico and setting them on the counter-attack. Um, this was a guy who was probably the wrong side of 30 um, and he was their captain for the night if I remember correctly and yeah he was just absolutely immense and uh, yeah it was a bit of a standoffish game probably in terms of a final probably two teams that were not the most aesthetically pleasing going head-to-head in an an inaugural Champions League uh, Europa League final. Well obviously Fulham didn't get off to the best start in this one. One by Jose Antonio Reyes. Aguero, Forlan! It is the opening goal of the final. Diego Forlan on 32 minutes. The man who got the decisive goal against Liverpool in the semi-final is at it again. That man, Diego Forlan, giving Atletico Madrid the lead. It was such a fluky, bouncy goal. It was a scuff shot from Aguero. Forlan did really, really well to, to, to react first and pounce to it. Drew, though, it was, it was a shaky start from Fulham. You could tell that the nerves had got to the players. There, there was actually a mistake, I think, from Dixon Atuhu in the, in the build-up um, to, to Atleti's goal, which kind of surrendered possession. And we'd already had a few warning shots from Diego Forlan before that. It wasn't the confident Fulham that we saw steamroll Hamburg in the, in the semi-finals and, and breeze past Juventus also in the uh, quarterfinals. No, everything about it. As soon as the final, as soon as the whistle went for the beginning of the game, and and we'd had all that whole day uh, in the in the centre of Germany, it all just felt suddenly like we realised where we were, and it was almost a step too far with, you know, forcing Bobby on uh, when he clearly wasn't ready, and Clint was obviously injured as well. Had had a bloody cast on when he came on, and it all everything just felt like we'd pushed it just that one step too far. And I could I can remember having that sort of nervous feeling where I thought where I thought exactly that. Um, and when I speak, I spoke to uh, Danny Murphy for the program uh, official club program a couple of seasons ago, and he he said uh, one of the biggest mistakes we made collectively is that we really thought we could win it after the semi final against Hamburg. Uh, he said it was a subconscious thing. Don't get me wrong. We knew we were playing a team with Aguero and Forlan up front. Um, but, you know, we, we thought that we were going to win it after after the semi. And I think uh, if they thought that, I certainly felt the opposite in the stands. I just felt that we, we pushed it, just we squeezed everything out of that that side. And, uh, you know, we were left with this this husk of a husk of a team. Uh, and, and, you know, although it wasn't as bad as that on the pitch, that's just the, the feeling that sort of came across. Well, I I was convinced it was offside, but it was yeah. so 
clearly onside that you know that shows that there was some some bias and you know I was a bit probably blurry eyed uh, that day as well um, and you know you got to think it's it's mad to think that the whole game you know it was a bit of a tetchy affair and you know you could probably argue that the teams just nullified each other Fulham was so defensively strong and structured and every and and um, and was so hard to break down and likewise that Atletico weren't exactly free-flowing that day as well they kind of played a more kind of attacking atta- um, counter-attacking football um, and you know in that respect it was kind of typical that you know all three goals let alone the the first goal were a bit scrappy and and unfortunate and it is kind of annoying that when you when you look back at it, that their goals were scrappy and annoying and weren't exactly touches of brilliance. Although, you know, Diego Forlan did exactly, you know, what a top, top striker does and and gambles and, and anticipates it. And he, he was able to from a ridiculously scuffed shot that was probably going to hit the corner flag from Sergio Aguero. And, you know, it that that is the mark of a top, top striker. You know, it's easy to forget that he went on and won the golden ball that year. So let's just say that's the the uh the rightful sort of um world player of the year really yeah ben i mean diego forlan was obviously ridiculed for his time at at man united and he just never really hit the ground running despite being a major major signing for them he never really got a sniff ahead of uh players like like rude van nisselroy but but 2010 was, was his real redemption year wasn't he he had a, he had an amazing world cup uh with uruguay that year who reached the semi-finals and of course he he scored both the goals in this final against an english team i don't think it went the full way to repairing what had happened to him in in england but it certainly went some way yeah i, I would tend to agree with that i think what people tend to forget is that when he he always says he was never really comfortable when he went to Manchester United. Obviously, he was incredibly young when he went there. And he had only ever played in, uh, I think it was either Argentina or Uruguay domestically before he went to Manchester United. But after then, he was basically a, a goal every other game at Villarreal before moving to Atletico. And as as I said, when we were uh, recapping Atleti, the year before he had, he had won the European Golden Shoe um, and he had won it quite comfortably as well. He was also the... Uh, the Pichichi in, in La Liga, which is the top scorer, and that was in the, the year before. So he was coming in in a, in a hot and, and very rich vein of form. And as you rightly say, he completely owned that World Cup in 2010. He was the European, he was the top scorer um, at, the, at the competition, um, although he did share it with Thomas Muller from memory. Um, but yeah, he propelled Uruguay all the way to uh, what would be a historic semi-final for them. Um, and probably it was, I believe, from memory, their their best um, showing at a World Cup since they won it uh, all the way back in uh, the 30s and the 50s. So yeah, he was he was a guy that was really trying to um, burst that myth that he wasn't a great striker at United and had a, a long and glittering career in in Spain and an exceptional um, uh, international career as well for Uruguay. Well, let's come on to a big, big moment for Fulham, a historic moment for Fulham. Just five minutes after conceding that opening. Zamora does really well with that step over. Damien Duff will retrieve it. Baird. Davis! Fulham have got themselves level. The comeback kings of this season's competition. 
have made it 1-1. Drew, explain your feelings in the stand when when Davies absolutely pinged that into the corner. It was um, it was an incredible, incredible moment. And whilst obviously I'm gutted that Fulham didn't win that final, at least we had that moment to cling on to. And it, it was something so special. Yeah, I mean, after the initial uh, limbs, I just remember thinking even then, like, no matter what happens, we scored in a European uh, Cup competition final and it was a goal that matters. It, was, it wasn't it was a consolation goal. And I remember thinking that even just then. And then obviously that dissipates and you think, right, OK, it's game on now. And the fact that it was what about five minutes after Forlan's goal, we weren't even down for that long. It, it, it it was uh, such a real sort of shot in the arm because, as I say, like I felt that like we were on our last legs sort of overall and, and, and the fact that that just happened so quickly and we didn't have to sort of chase the game for, large, for a long time, it was just such a huge boost. And, you know, Davies really came into his own in that campaign, but that I really feel like that final was set up for him uh you know I think I think he played really well for us on the day but you know there's there a few chances that he had I'm sure one of which we'll get on to later but it, it really was I think his his final and I was reading the piece in the athletic today and he said he was um set to be the fifth penalty taker and you just think if things had just lined up a little bit differently he would have been uh you know probably the biggest name in our history yeah um, obviously we touched upon Zamora's fitness before and it showed that he only had you know he, he influenced the game a little bit but that was his major influ influence of uh, skipping over the ball and creating the opening a fully fit Zamora probably would have gobbled up that chance straight away but you know Simon Davis has has said that you know one of his strongest points was was volleying the ball and that's probably something he's practiced over and over again in in training and it is such a sweet strike that you know David De Gea doesn't get anywhere near it and I would agree that Davis was probably our best best player um that day um he was certainly the, the most influential had scored the goal had a couple of other chances uh, after that but you know the feelings of actually seeing a goal go in that uh, in a in a major European final for for Fulham it's still mind-boggling to me and um the absolute pandemonium pandemonium in the in the stands is was just, you know, something to be reckoned with. Well, obviously, Davies scored the goal, but he did have another massive chance to potentially put Fulham in the lead. In by Baird. And Davies again! This time De Gea's in his way. This one always gets to me. And I was watching the highlights again um, in preparation for, for doing this podcast. And... That Davies chance in the second half where it ricochets off the Atleti defender and just comes right in the right place for Davies. He had so much time. He could have taken a touch, but he took it first time, which I guess after the success of it working like that in the in the first half was the sensible option. He just didn't quite get it into the corner enough. And Ben, that I feel is the moment. There weren't many... There weren't many clear-cut chances in this game. For me, that was the potentially the moment where Fulham could have gone and won it. And I, I just can't help but ask, what if? I can't help but agree and say that if, if he had taken a touch there, he had definitely had enough space. He could have picked any corner that he wanted to. He had all the time in the world. And if he had buried that, I think it could well have been you know, game over for Atleti. Fulham had been extremely good uh, at, soaping, at soaking up pressure and hitting teams on the counter all throughout that Europa League uh, run and campaign. And I feel like perhaps if we had taken a march there, then the game would become more stretched and Atleti would would probably have 
committed bodies forward that they maybe couldn't have afforded to and we would have picked them off. Um, I definitely thought we had enough quality to do so had we gone two on up there. Drew, what was your feeling going into extra time? It finished one all after the 90 minutes and I just remember thinking, goodness me, this is tense. Could this get any more excruciating here we are in the biggest game of our lives and it's gone and it's going to be played for another 30 minutes potentially penalties I I almost couldn't watch yeah I think uh, I think for me when it got to extra time I kind of thought that the slate was wiped clean and I just thought you know anything can happen now uh you know 30 minutes 15 minutes each way we're, we're both knackered but we know exactly what we need to do. We're obviously a Roy Hodgson side, well drilled. We all know. Uh, I just thought that you know, for 15 minutes either way, they would have they would have thought about that. They would have prepared for that. They'd have been ready for that. And I thought, do you know what? It, it, we we could we could do it here. Um, but at, at the same time, of course, you know, I'm pretty much shaking with uh, adrenaline just because you think to yourself, well. It, I I thought before the final it was going to be settled in regular time. I don't think many people thought it was going to go to extra time. So when it does get there, you just it, it starts to feel, you know, a little bit mad. Well, for those who are of a nervous disposition, you might want to turn down the podcast for five to ten seconds. Tyler Seguero will chase this one down. Aaron Hughes trying to keep him out. Still Aguero, and he's worked it into Diego Forlan. That surely will be the winner in this final. Four minutes of extra time to play. It's Diego Forlan again. There it is, Forlan's winner. He stole a march to the front post. It ricochets off Breda Hangeland. And when myself, Farrell and Jack caught up with Breda Hangeland a few years ago on Fulhamish, this is what he had to say about the moment. I'm not one to look back and, and kind of blame myself, but it's—I really should have done better than it. It's uh, when I think about it, it's frustrating because I normally used to just um, uh, run to the first post quicker uh, or before the striker even thought about doing it. But for some reason, maybe it was fatigue, maybe whatever. Um, I let them get to half a yard, and that's cost us really. Farrell, talk to me about how gut wrenching that four line goal was. Five minutes to go from from the end of the match. I I was devastated. As far as proud as I was that Fulham made it all the way to that final, all the way into extra time. How amazing we were! Nothing could prepare you for for a late blow like that. Do I have to talk about it? Yes. Um, it's taken me. It's it still gets to me considerably but the the overarching emotion is pride and one of those one of those um moments for me that really stands out from it was the 30 seconds or so after the ball slithers over the over the line um for the winner is was another sort of um impromptu moment from the Fulham fans which was there was just this applause that rang around the ground um, from that moment until the final whistle, really just applauding the squad, um, the manager, everyone to, do, to, you know, associated with Fulham the past year that we had seen um, that, you know, they'd given us something special and they'd given us some memories. But, you know, and that kind of is the, the one thing that nullifies the absolute sickener that is and the absolute shithousery kind of goal that it that it all that it all kind of was from from Diego Forlan you know his shot probably would have trickled out for out wide and then we would have seen another minute go by 
towards penalty shootouts because that's kind of what we'd what we'd come to expect, especially since you know right at the death of the the first half of extra time, it, there was Aguero's stab, which to be honest, I still think it went in at the time. They I thought it went in. The the Madrid fans were singing and um, they replayed it over and over again in the stadium. We're all sitting there going, I think I think that went in. But the score hasn't changed, um, you know. And then I kind of thought, well, if that didn't go in, maybe we'll just get to penalties. That will be the last. That will be the last chance. And I really fancied Fulham in a penalty shootout. We had Mark Schwarzer, who had come to known as a bit of a penalty saver. I mean, he saved one from Jeremy Menez, um earlier on that season, and he'd saved quite a few in the in the Premier League, not for Fulham, but uh, for previous clubs. I remember famously he. He saved one Middlesbrough against Man City, I believe. And I think if Man City had scored that one, they would have gone to the Europa League instead of Middlesbrough. Yeah, Drew, it turned over the years from immense disappointment to pride. And I think that the subsequent anniversaries of the Europa run have showed that Fulham fans still feel enormous pride from that run. And actually, the journey was more important than the trophy. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Pride over the course of the intervening 10 years, uh, it just grows and grows. But at the time, and I remember the applause and I remember joining in, but I just I just remember thinking, for God's sake, we always have to. There's that sense of just that, that bitter, bitter disappointment where it's like, yeah, we're clapping and we're showing our appreciation. But come on, four minutes. Like, can we not? Could we not just have this? It's always that sort of always the bridesmaid kind of situation. And, you know, all of our friends, we're all the same. We all have friends who support big four clubs and they always get this 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 glory. And I was thinking, why? Why can it not be us? And, you know, I'm clapping. But at the time, I was bitterly disappointed. I was acting like a petulant child. As soon as it finished, I didn't even see Atletico uh, lift, lift the trophy. I didn't even see it. I went back. It was sleep deprivation. I've been on the, been up for for 24 hours pretty much you know you can't sleep on those coaches that the club put on as you know as generous as they were to do decent price driving to Hamburg it was it was it was crap uh, and it was just at the time just just the lowest lowest point um, and and I think as well there was it, you know as I said earlier in extra time it was all it was all to play for I can remember you know they were we were pretty even and he, uh, going back to uh, the Danny Murphy interview that I did a couple of years ago he said um he said, although we weren't firing on all cylinders, there was nothing between us an extra time. He said, we were both tired. And I remember talking to one of the Atletico players in the middle of the park during extra time. And he just smiled and said, let's do pens, which is, you know, fascinating, really. And uh, and he finishes by saying, I still believe to this day that Schwartz would have won us the game on penalties, which is, you know, like what Farrell said. Uh, I think we had the keeper to do it. Um, but the fact that, you know, I think that uh, the Atletico players knew that it was heading or believed it was heading to to pens as well is a is you know fascinating bit of insight but you know obviously it wasn't to be i mean i remember that journey home and uh, me and my dad well, were lucky enough to get uh, flights to and from and the hamburg airport is not a big airport and it was so crowded i don't think we managed to get on a plane until about four in the morning and it was a pretty brutal journey back and to maybe a victory just would have made that journey so much sweeter but that journey coupled with a defeat was quite a sour end to what was potentially one of the most beautiful days of ever supporting Fulham and and, and I'm like you Drew I didn't stay to watch Hamburg lift the trophy or to see 
Fulham collect their runners-up medals, which I still really, really regret because why it was still an, a, a momentous moment in that we should have been there to applaud them off the pitch but I never just I just remember being so terribly gutted and, and Ben from an Atleti point of view well you look 10 years later at the the trajectory that Fulham have gone on since that day and the, and then the upward motion that Atletico have had ever since then and you can't believe that we ever shared the same football pitch and came four minutes of being only separated by spot kicks. Archie summed it up perfectly in the Hamburg um, podcast when he said that Fulham were given the platform to go on and be a bigger club, but they weren't ready for it. And when you look at the context around the club, Alfaya didn't particularly want it anymore there. It wasn't as investment going in. But when you look at Atleti, they're completely the opposite. They go on and they win another Europa League uh, two years after that, that beating Fulham. They beat Athletic Club in the, in the final in Bucharest. And then they go on two years later um, under Simeone to, uh, you know, a Champions League final. And they win their first ever La Liga. They bring in Falcao for 40 million euros uh, two years after getting to the Europa League final. They bring in Antoine Griezmann. They have Diego Costa. They have a blueprint for... A, a massive and long run at international su- success um, across the continent. Um, and they've gone on to be one of the biggest players in Spanish football. Um, you could argue, of course, uh, with Aleti that they probably should have done better given the resources they have and given the significant investment they have from China. But um, that Europa League um, propelled them and gave them a platform that they never thought they would probably have. Um, and yeah, they they are a completely different club to Fulham now. Um, as painful it is as it is to say, uh, Drew. What are your final thoughts on on Fulham's Europa run, uh, and what is your overarching feeling looking back at it so many years later? It was a, just an incredible, incredible moment, an incredible day. Um, I feel like looking back, just just so much pride on the whole run itself. We obviously peaked against Hamburg, and that one at the cottage will forever be for me the highlight. But it was uh, just the day itself was just fantastic, uh, bettered by Wembley uh, eight years later, where you had that same day, that same atmosphere with the people you love so much. You're all Fulham fans, but you had the icing on the cake of the victory rather than the horrible, uh, you know, ending that we had. But, you know, if you just look at it, you know, they say it's just a game. Uh, they, but obviously just the feelings that you had at the end of it, I don't think I can ever sort of replicate when I watched the highlights again today, uh, ahead of the podcast, all of the feelings just came flooding back that sense of occasion, but also that sense of just sadness at the end of it. Uh, but the run itself, what can be said that hasn't already been said, it was incredible. And, uh, it's just a shame that we didn't get the ending that we wanted. No, we didn't indeed. Well, thank you very much for listening to this special episode of Unforgettable, looking back at the Europa League final in 2010, where sadly Fulham couldn't complete the European fairy tale, but what a journey it was all the way to that final in Hamburg. Thank you uh, to my three contributors today. To Farrell Monk, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Stay home, safe lives. Drew Heatley, thank you very much. Cheers, all. Thank you. And Ben, thank you very much. Thank you. Make sure you're subscribed to Fulhamish uh, to get all your podcasts straight onto your phone. Uh, And from all of us, we'll see you very soon. There were tears, there was sadness, as Fulham's dreams of European glory came to an end in Hamburg last night. Dempsey. Dempsey will try and chip one. Wonderful. Absolutely.
we became part of the great magma of, of the crowd. The Fulham side was a ragtag collection of players who had something left in them to prove. was a genuinely beautiful sporting occasion and it was hard not to be carried away by it.